the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. Good afternoon to you. It was the product that saved many farmers in a mouse plague when other products didn't work as well as promised. But double strength mouse bait is now out of the toolbox. The approval for that product has lapsed. It has not been renewed. So where does that leave farmers? Where does that leave you? In some good news following that Indonesian election, it seems export permits are back on again. You'll hear about what that means for cattle in rural news today. Also hear from table grape producers about what it means a little bit closer to home. Many table grapes head that way from the border region between Victoria and New South Wales. The Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. Over the weekend, there was sad confirmation that the 50-year-old dairy farmer, though, that died during last week's storms at Merbu North was Bruce Manitveld. We've spoken to Bruce many times on this program, the last being when he paid off his farm in seven and a half years. Now, when we spoke to him, it was eight years, but he sent me a sheepish note the next day to say he got the maths wrong, and he actually paid it off faster than he thought. Bruce Manitveld was hit by a large section of shed when the storm hit. His last post on social media was a photo of the giant storm clouds rolling in over Merbu North. His wife Fiona Baker shared on X that he was racing the storm to bring the cows in. He rolled the dice and lost. That's farming though, she says. You roll the dice. He normally won but not this time. She described Bruce as a man who loved his cows. Farmer Colin Wingens said he, when it comes to farming, he was one of the best. Everyone, everyone knows who he is. He's yeah, a great fellow, one of the best farmers I know. Um, and, yeah, he's, he's uh, been good to a lot, a lot of us younger guys that have come up, especially with, you know, bouncing ideas off him and, and asking questions and, you know, how do we go about it, what do we do? Because, you know, someone at the top of their game like him um, going to learn a lot from. Mm. So, yeah, shattering. The storm ripped a shed apart at Bruce's property and damaged a, a really that huge area of shed with structural steel still attached, was moved hundreds of metres. The clean-up at the property is still ongoing and a farmer from the other side of the state, Craig Dwyer, is there helping out. I spoke to him about the clean-up and about Bruce earlier today. Like just a, a ripping bloke, um, being uh, uh, ex Murray Goulburn, um, yeah, had, had a few dealings with him back when uh, the proverbial hit the fan in 2016. So um, yeah, like he's just a, a ripping lad, always had something to offer and uh, always stuck to his guns. Did, did things slightly differently, but um, yeah, just just a ripping bloke who always had um, had something to offer to a, to a ag conversation. Yeah, he's been described as somebody who was sort of quite at the top of his game in terms of dairy farming too. Is that something that you saw? Um, he's he's a quiet achiever down here in Gippsland. Um, yeah, if you if you ask around, um, nobody has anything bad to say. And uh, look, yeah, he's def, definitely at uh, at the top. Him and Fiona are definitely at the top of the game with the dairy farming side of things. That's for sure. You're there at his place, uh, helping with some of the cleanup now, eh? Yeah, myself and uh, Craig Detling and, and my wife Donna came down last night. We're just uh, we, we're giving him a couple of days while, while we can. Um, yeah, he's got an excavator here, and uh, Brian Core is um, another uh, reputable lad on Twitter. He's um, yeah, he's got everything uh, organised, and uh, we're just uh, picking up uh, the slack where, where he can't be here all the time, as, as other blokes have got farms to run too. 
What does it look like? Does it? We're almost a, a week on from the storm. Can you still see the the after effects of it? Yeah, mate. Look, there's there's a lot of corrugated iron still to be picked up, and there's a power of um, timber down. Like there's a lot of old cypress trees had the tops ripped out of them and and blown for for, for several paddocks. So um, it's just getting debris off off fence lines, and like seemed very localized. Like we were coming through just on dusk last night, but um, where it's been, just yeah, it's catastrophic. Given that you're there, given that, as you mentioned, another farmer that you know from Twitter's been helping out uh, milking the cows, another farmer from, from Online World is helping out there. Does it go to show farming can be quite, well, lonely in the sense that you're in, you're in paddocks working by yourself a lot of the time, but does this show the strength of the online community in farming that you're you're there and, and others are there to, to help and uh, and honour Bruce's memory uh, in, in the coming days after after such a horrific event? Oh, without a doubt, was um, and Brian's organised um, a, a lot of the local crew. I mean, we're we're just ring, ringings tagging along here, really. Um, but yeah, the the, um, the, the local community. Uh, yeah, there's we, we stayed at Fiona's last night, and there's there's food everywhere, and um, yeah, they've really rallied behind her. So um, yeah, look, it's it's excellent to see, and um, yeah, it, it definitely the um, the online world. Yeah, drags a few few together and uh, cobbles a motley crew. But yeah, when when it's when it hits the fan, you definitely get in and help out where you can. How's Fiona? No, travelling traveling as, as well as we could expect. Um, going well. Um, yeah, still organising the cows. Um, yeah, there, there's a obviously she's got a lot in the plate, so we're just trying to min- minimise what she has to do. And, yeah, the local community will um, yeah, back, back her to the hilt, no doubt. So, um, yeah, she'll, she'll keep on punching. That is Craig Dwyer, dairy farmer from Bullahaya uh, down in the southwest, but he's over in Gippsland at the property of Bruce Manetveld, who sadly died in those storms last week at Merbu North. And the frustration of those storms and their after effect is continuing in areas of South Gippsland. Dairy farmers who have been trying to keep the farm going for a week without power say they're starting to feel the fatigue. Aaron Thomas farms at Wanron in South Gippsland, which was smashed by the storms as well. He told Mim Hook this is the third time in two and a half years he's been without power for more than five days. Oh, we've got a generator. So, you know, we're, we've been doing it okay, but part of our farm has power and other parts of our farm don't have power. There's you know, a few few lines that come in and out from our property. Is this just the reality now and we all need to have backup plans or do does someone more up there in power, governments, authorities need to change the way things are done? Oh, big time. This is, I think I said to you in a text message yesterday, Mim, this is the third time in two and a half years we've had no power for more than five days. And you've... But you've... Very, very, very hard when you try and operate a 500-cow business with one arm tied behind your back mm, but you've got so enough big. power through generators the cow to to sort out the milk and the supply chain for milk that hasn't been absolutely, broken yeah absolutely milking hasn't milking itself hasn't been affected um i suppose the only really thing that's been affected is uh, our fuel budget we've burnt through uh, nearly fourteen hundred dollars worth of fuel in five days which is you know probably about half of our our, our monthly fuel usage is gone in five days Oh, I'm pretty, I'm pretty exhausted to be honest. Um, you know, like just running around, just logistically, um, trying to keep, you know, keep generators running. We've got a generator that's got to run, you know, nearly 24/7 to supply water to the farm because, um, you know, where the where the pump, where the actual pump is located, it runs off a, a, 
um, a certain meter, which is still without power, which is also my home. So, yeah, and then, uh, you know, earlier in the week when we couldn't get fuel, you know, we are doing 100K round trips to, to get fuel to keep the lights on. Yeah, it's been very tiring and, and, and really quite taxing to, to everybody, to me and, and, and my staff, where, you know, we've, we've all been affected by this and it's still ongoing, unfortunately. So your work day has just blown out. There's, you, you... Oh, yeah, 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 you, you, don't, you don't sleep properly because you've got the generator running because you've got to pump the water and, yeah, it's just... Uh, you know, you just run around all day and all night. You know, keeping keeping generators fueled up and running. To, you know, to so you can still do business. Then still no um, no internet or really dodgy phone reception. I'm I'm down on the down on the highway just so I could speak to you this morning. That is one Ron Dairy Farmer Aaron Thomas. He was speaking to Mim Hook there. It is a quarter past twelve here on the Country Hour. Along with you. With that frustration growing of regular blackouts affecting things like Aaron Thomas's dairy farm, what is that? Three times in two and a half years he's been out, been without power for more than five days. And dairy is one of those things you need to be able to milk your cows day in, day out, and you need power to be able to do that and keep the milk cold. Uh, farmers are looking at other solutions, and some of those solutions have been investigated elsewhere in Victoria. One of the questions being raised is if microgrids could be the solution to rural Australia's fragile electricity networks. With thousands of people without power in Victoria when transmission and distribution infrastructure was hit by storms or taken out by falling trees, is a smaller, closer-to-home grid the option to uh, better future-proof some of these agricultural businesses? Chris Saunas is the CEO of the Wimmera Southern Mallee Development Association. He helped set up a microgrid at the Birchip Cropping Group in 2018 and says having a self-sufficient power supply can be a lifesaver when the network goes down, particularly in Western Victoria, where electricity networks are old and vulnerable to storms. Western Victoria, we're at the end of the distribution network, so obviously we're at more risk for things going wrong, because it can happen anywhere along the system. Once the sort of lines get towards the end, those individuals and in those communities are far more exposed to power outages than other parts. What do you think, in your opinion, what would help to make the system more robust? I think there is a real opportunity to design a system that allows more generation and distribution at a, a smaller scale. Microgrids is one term that is often used. It has a few different meanings, but the opportunity... And a number of communities are doing it where you generate power locally and feed that into the community that is living there and then creates an opportunity to make a more resilient system. Everyone, I think, still would like to know there's a network around it and being totally off the grid is one opportunity, but I think that is has its own challenges. So I think having a grid that complements a local generation and distribution is the best possible system and that creates the most resilient. There are challenges of why that's not being done at the moment, but I think there's a lot of people putting a lot of thought in how to overcome those challenges. And you were involved in setting up a microgrid when you were at Birchip Cropping Group. Could you tell us a little bit about how did that work and how does it help when you have a power outage? So that system was set up as a part of a trial to understand how a microgrid worked. It was a combination of solar cells and batteries and it just allowed the Birchip Cropping Group to, if there was a power outage, to be independent. It allowed Birch Cropping Group to continue operating with full access to power. So it was just demonstrating proof of concept. And I think for our region, that is one of the ways 
will go. The question is, is it best for each individual business or home to have its own battery or are we best to do it as a neighbourhood? And I know there's a government program at the moment that's offering opportunities around that. It will be great if we can get a few set up in Western Victoria, but there is also challenges of trying to come up with the right way of doing it too. From your position on the Wimmera Development Association, do you have any asks of government in terms of how you'd like that to move forward? Yeah, I think the number one piece is allowing communities to establish some neighbourhood batteries. From what I understand, I think often it's the regulatory environment is one of the biggest challenges in allowing communities to go forward. A number of communities have looked at trying to establish neighbourhood batteries or neighbourhood community energy projects, and it is really hard work for a community to take it that far, but then it's actually making it work on a scale, so a town of a minyup or a could be yeah, resilient if there was a grid failure or a bird chip. And that's the sort of scale I think would be really great. So our towns do have that resilience because at the moment many of them don't actually have enough power to function their fullest as they'd like to. Are there any examples of community scale microgrids that you're looking towards when you're thinking about those kind of projects? In, in Victoria there's two examples that are often talked about, one at Dalesford and one at Yakandanda, they're both uh, put forward as, I suppose, really great examples of community energy projects. I think it's great that those communities have been able to execute and have the drive to do that, but not every community has that level of expertise or, I suppose, financial wherewithal within to make these happen, and that's probably where I'm particularly interested in is how do we make sure all communities have opportunity to access it rather than ones that have a particular advantage over others. Grattan Institute Energy and Climate Change Program Director Tony Wood says microgrids are being built surprisingly slowly, considering the solutions the technology offers. It is a bit surprising to me that we haven't made more progress in that area. In, in a technical sense, they're probably not all that complicated, but all the, the, the system we have today is built around a lot of assumptions about the regulations, about customer communications and all that sort of stuff. And a lot of that may very well have to be re- uh, reformed so that we can actually have a system of, the, of a very different type. So I think that um, the use of, even the use of rooftop solar and batteries um, isn't very well running at the moment because when you have all the solar in the middle of the day with our rooftops, it's actually relatively low value because there's so much of it. But if we can store that in batteries in the middle of the day and then use it at night time, that would be fabulous. But the current pricing structures don't give consumers the incentive to do that so there's another thing so all these things have to be changed and I think it is going more slowly than it should. What level of government should be looking at making those changes is that the Victorian state government that should be investing in that that kind of infrastructure? Look I think inevitably the Victorian state government um, has to take a lead in the, in the policy direction and set the tone of what has to happen here. The government itself doesn't have to invest in this in this infrastructure the companies in the case of Victoria are privatised entities but if the government puts the appropriate regulations in place, they will um, they will invest in the technologies we're talking about. But they they need the government needs to set the policy framework for companies to do that. It will also require, as we found out with this problem of building transmission lines in regional Victoria, that you can't just do this from Melbourne. You've got to deal with local local governments, local councils, local communities, and the businesses that are doing this. Finally, I think the governments have woken up to this. Need to be on the ground interacting with not just individual farmers, but also local communities. And that's going to be something we haven't done properly. So we do need um, all those groups to get this done. 
That is Grattan Institute Energy and Climate Change Program Director Tony Wood ending that report from Elsie Kennedy. The Victorian Energy Minister Lily D'Ambrosio has been contacted for comment. Nothing back yet. It's 21 past 12. Some of your texts in on this to 0467 842 722. did get this text in regards to Bruce Manneveld, who we were speaking about earlier, the 50-year-old dairy farmer who died in last week's storm, saying, Hi, was sad news about the death of the farmer. Like all farmers, though, we should all stick together. We are all one, says this text as well. Thank you for sending that through. On power, though, Warwick, isn't this a good reason to put power lines underground? It's not rocket science. It's uh, why don't you get an interview with Oznet? It's a perfect opportunity, says Macca. Happy to try, Macca. Happy to put in that request. On your behalf, Nick at Lakes Entrance says, Warwick, the whole state's going backwards. 40% cut to the rural roads budgets, just one cut. Wait until the next budget comes out, says Nick. I think relating uh, investment in infrastructure uh, to our discussion around the power network as well. And then there's this text when it comes to mouse baits and the lapsing of mouse baits. We're just about to hear about that. I'm really interested to know in how you feel about the lapsing of uh, the ability for double strength uh, mouse bait to be used in Australia. You can always send us a text, 0467 842 Harold has sent this text to me saying, if mouse bait that does not kill 100% of mice is all that's available, then farmers are going to be tempted to use illegal mixes that do work, say, says Harold on the text line. And that's where we'll pick up right now here on The Country. Let's get the details of this. Farmers have lost access to double-strength mouse bait that they say has been a game-changer in controlling the problem pest. Peak Body Grain Producers Australia is working with a regulator, the APVMA, the Australian Pesticide Veterinary Medicines Authority, to get the lapsed permit renewed. But it's unclear how long that will take. Angus Verley is chatting here with Andrew Wiedemann, GPA's Research and Development Spokesperson, about the current situation. The permit has expired as of the 31st of December. So unfortunately now we don't have the product available to the market. Manufacturers are unable to uh, manufacture the product. So we're currently in the process of working with the regulator to look at it being a minor use permit and obviously trying to work through the data gaps that may be required. Okay, so that permit had a, had a, a deadline on it then and we've, we've reached that deadline. Yeah, absolutely. Look, it was, the permit itself was uh, put in place as an emergency permit uh, situation and, of course, at the moment we do have mouse numbers occurring in southern Queensland and uh, in the, in the uh, Millawa area up around Mildura and, and around that area, as I believe. Uh, and, of course, given the season that we just had and, and the late harvest and the amount of grain that's around, we're expecting there could be some populations building up of mice in other areas. But uh, it's being ready and able to act when they, they arrive. And You know, from my own personal experience using Zinc 50, I've actually been able to get rid of a population that's been existing in a paddock for probably the last 15 years uh, just with one application. So, you know, the science itself has shown that the uh, Zinc 50 is a more potent, obviously, uh, obviously uh, given the construct of it, product to use and, and uh, clearly the aversion that we've been seeing in the 25 product is, is actually real. But, you know, we've got to have the science again to support those arguments and the environmental uh, assessments that need to be done. And, and we're waiting on uh, the regulator coming back to us with uh, a list of, you know, their requests for further information so that we can then progress the Zinc 50 to a, a minor use permit. So with, with the old lower strength bait, what was happening is that 
mice would eat that bait, it would be a non-lethal dose and then they'd have an aversion to it and wouldn't eat any more bait? Yeah, look, that's right. But I, I mean, in all uh, essence, though, the Zinc 25 still works uh, to a level. And I think that's got to be recognised that the Zinc 25 is still a product that does a job. But as I've experienced and other growers have experienced previously where they've been using multiple applications of Zinc 25, one application of the Zinc 50 seems to be able to wipe out what's there. And and so we need that product fully registered in eventually for the industry to use. And, and then the choice can be made from a pricing perspective for growers from 25 to 50, but also understanding the requirements around using Zinc 50 uh, in terms of the application processes as well uh, and when and where it can be used. And we're about three months on now, I think, from when Grain Producers Australia applied for a renewal of that permit. What's the timeline going to be and and are you confident that it will be renewed? Uh, Look, I'll be honest with you, Angus, and for for the listeners, that it's a waiting game, and uh, I don't really want to predict uh, what the regulator and the timelines that they'll they'll put to us. But look, hopefully, uh, we'll be sitting down with them sometime next week to discuss uh, what's required. Uh, we're also working very closely, obviously, with G- the Grains Research Development Corporation (GRDC) in this process. Um, yeah, they're instrumental, really. Uh, you know, and through the growers' levy, this is work that's so important to us and a real payback for farmers. And is there going to be a, a lag even if the permit is renewed because uh, production of the double-strength bait has, has ceased now that the permit has lapsed? Uh, no, look, the mechanisms are in place for the manufacturers to be able to manufacture should we have uh, the legal ability to do that and then obviously on-sell it. So I don't see that being an issue. The tech is available, uh, obviously, and, and 25 is available for farmers. I know that's being purchased by... Uh, a number of growers at the moment where they've got nothing else to use. And technically, Andrew, since the the permit has lapsed, even if farmers have got that double strength bait on hand uh, by the by the letter of the law, they're not actually allowed to apply it. That's correct. That is that is the law, and uh, and unfortunately, that's the that's the process uh, surrounding that. And can APVMA give give this double strength bait uh, ongoing? approval or will it uh, will it still have a, a, a time uh, an end time attached to it oh no look i think once we get through the next few hurdles uh it will go to registration eventually uh, angus that would be my view and vision and hope that it uh, eventually end up being a registered product uh, on the shelf and we won't be using permit situations to uh, be able to use it but if we can get it to a minor use permit situation as a starter obviously the work that's surrounding it to then take it to full registration you know, will continue in the background as well. So, you know, eventually, you know, in my assessment of this, that farmers will eventually have it fully registered, but that'll be somewhere down the track and it may not be in the next 12 months. It could be two or three years until that has occurred. That's a hopeful Andrew Wiedemann, a farmer at Rapania and Research and Development Spokesperson with the Grain Producers Australia Group. He was speaking there with Angus Verley. Some of your texts coming in on Giggle to this, I was. Maybe some non-venomous pythons, says. It's either Annie or Anonymous. I think that's meant to have come through. Uh, but uh, that gave me a giggle. Yes. And also, biological controls, predator controls like that have always worked well, haven't they, with a cane toad in the back of my mind. I don't think exactly that would be the case with something like this, but it is an interesting suggestion all the same. And on power lines, this one says, Warwick, 
trees and power lines don't mix really well. We've known that for a long time. So why don't we clear the trees back far enough so they can't fall on the power lines again and again and again like now? Or would that be simple old common sense and the powers that be don't seem to have any of that, says this old bloke on text. Happy to read your text. 0467 842 722. Hey, programming note just before I go to rural news, tomorrow on the Country Hour, probably broadcasting from the VFF's Constitutional Extraordinary General Meeting uh, vote. If you have any questions or information you'd like to know about that, you can either text that in now or you can always email us, countryhour at abc.net.au. If you'd like to send us an email, happy to put some of those questions on your behalf to the powers that be. Clearly the vote will be going on uh, either at or just before we go to air. So uh, not in terms of getting that information to you before you take your vote, but if you'd like to know more, like to know what the result means, get in contact with us uh, before the country out tomorrow. 0467 842 722 to send us a text. Let's get rural news right now. Fiona Broom has rural news for you this lunchtime. Good afternoon, Fiona. G'day, Was Making rural news today, Australia's cattle industry has received some good news, with Indonesia finally issuing import permits for live cattle. The news came through late on Friday, and by Saturday there was a ship getting loaded at Darwin Port, which is now on its way to Jakarta. Troy Setter is the boss of the Consolidated Pastoral Company, which runs stations across northern Australia and also some feedlots in Indonesia. I think it's quite a big relief, not just for producers and, and exporters from Australia, but also in importers in Indonesia that were starting to face a fair bit of pressure from customers that they were supplying cattle to and, and looking at them uh, having to put in uh, restrictions on sales. So everyone was quite relieved and particularly some of the live exporters have had ships with the anchor down paying demurrage in Darwin Harbour that uh, is very expensive. Demurrage can cost anywhere from twenty to $50,000 US a day costs about five to seven dollars per head per day to have them standing in the export yards um, waiting for export. To WA now where a West Kimberley cattle station is getting serious about trying to grow crops under irrigation. The aim is to diversify and spread the risk. Roebuck Plains Station is owned and operated by Nyamba Buru Yaru Aboriginal Corporation and Business Development Officer Ellen Smith says they've just been given the green light to change the tenure of 420 hectares of land to allow them to clear the country and put in five centre pivot irrigators. So the business case that we did um, certainly focused on fodder, given that we've got a cattle station, there's some obvious you know, alignment there. However, we're not tied to just growing fodder. Um, and once we progress a little bit further down this process to give effect to the conditional freehold through an Indigenous land use agreement, then we will do an expression of interest to the market. Uh, and we're looking to ideally form a joint venture or, or lease a portion of the 420 hectare site to a third party. And, you know, that person might have expertise in growing fodder or that individual or company might have um, interests in growing food for human consumption. Over to water and a water broker says there are plenty of irrigators willing to sell their water to the government in the Murray-Darling. In its latest tender, the federal government will spend $205 million to return 26 gigalitres of water to the environment. But there are plans from the government to buy hundreds of gigalitres more. Rural co-water broker John Armstrong says many irrigators, particularly in South Australia, will be willing to sell. There are a group of irrigators in us 
particularly in the Riverland there, uh, who because of market conditions in, you know, in wine grapes uh, and those sorts of industries that are, you know, considering a way out uh, for their future, right? Whether they want to keep farming or whether they want to, you know, get out. And, and being able to sell their water entitlement is a good way to fund, you know, their retirement and, and to get out of the industry. And right at now, the Commonwealth is basically the only buyer in the market. Every, every other buyer has pulled back on pricing. And authorities say they didn't miss a report of varroa mite near the port of Newcastle more than a year ago before the invasive pest was found in Australia. The New South Wales Department of Primary Industries says it fully investigated a suspected case of varroa mite in April 2021, 14 months prior to it being officially detected in sentinel hives at the port of Newcastle, which sparked the emergency response. The false alarm has been raised by Northern New South Wales beekeeper and president of Crop Pollination Association of Australia, Steve Fuller, in his submission to the Red Imported Fire Ants Inquiry, where he raised concerns about the varroa mite response. It's just really, really coincidence that um, um, there was a false alarm 13 months before and it sort of got swept under the carpet. Once it does get discovered, we've found that it has been in Australia for 18 months to two years. Now, was it a false alarm or did we really miss the boat? These are things we've got to really address. The DPI's acting chief plant protection officer, Dr Shane Hetherington, says the false alarm was thoroughly investigated. That beekeeper was approximately 19 kilometres from the sentinel hives that we had at Port of Newcastle. When we investigated a little bit further, we discovered that what had happened was that particular beekeeper had been trialling a piece of bee scanning software, an app, and had actually scanned some test images, um, so some stock images that were on that particular app. The purpose of those test images was to allow people to, to scan them and test that the app actually worked. What was sent in to us wasn't an actual picture of his beehives. It was a test image off of the app. So it was a, a false alarm. There's been no covering up of varroa mite by the Department of Primary Industries. No covering up whatsoever. And that wraps up Rural News for today, Was. Thank you very much for that. Fiona Broom there with Rural News. Quickly on the text, Jill, on the issues of power we were talking about earlier in the program, saying, hi, Warwick, all we need is a horse and buggy for transport and would be farming back in the 40s. Still no power on our farm. You're at Tainong North, aren't you? Jill, gosh, that must be frustrating. Thank you very much for the update. All the same, sent using precious power, I'd imagine, on your phone too. So I'm glad that you uh, keep us informed all the same. Thank you for that. Well, hopefully, Jill, the one thing that you wouldn't have had in the 40s is a long-term weather forecast, at least over the next few days. And we've got that for you right now. Let's jump into it. Lincoln Trainer is a senior forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology. G'day, Lincoln. G'day, Warwick. How are you going? Yeah, I'm good. There's a lot going off. You tell me, where should we start? All right. Um, Well, it's interesting. Um, We've had a bit of a stable weather pattern over the last five days, and that's about to break. So uh, people will have seen persisting similar conditions um, with this kind of stationary ridge, high-pressure ridge over the southern half of the state, uh, while an inland low-pressure trough um, has lied over the northeast. Now, these two systems are combined and persisted for... uh, since late last week and they've brought mostly sunny conditions across the state as you would have experienced warm to hot in the north and mild to settled in the south we have seen the odd shower and thunderstorm in the northeast also there's been quite a bit of fog around um, to the south of the ranges every morning under this high pressure and a lot of low 
low cloud that's been banking up on the ranges and then persisting into the afternoon, trapped uh, under this high pressure. So that's what's been happening, but this weather pattern's going to break tomorrow um, as the inland trough moves slightly to the west uh, and deepens over the north and central uh, Victoria. And that's going to bring a chance of storms and some showers across the eastern half of the state, which is definitely different um, to the last few days. Um, and uh, uh, not much uh, rainfall is expected, uh, and we're expecting a total is about 1 to 10 millimetres, but it is different to what we've been seeing because it's been mostly sunny. Um, and m- most of this will be over the uh, eastern ranges, and there is a slight risk of severe thunderstorms in the east uh, with some heavy localised falls, uh, 15 to 25 millimetres, more in the kind of eastern ranges. Um, temperatures becoming warm in the south and remaining warm to hot in the north. It actually does spark a slight low-intensity heat wave, believe it or not, across the south of oh. the state from Tuesday to Thursday. Um, and, what's and what a, what's means, a low-intensity heat wave? Um, it's not severe. <laughs> um, and, so, and why isn't it severe? It's to do with um, the maximum temperatures during the day and the minimum temperatures at night. And when that gap is reduced and you don't get much relief from the heat, it's called a heat wave. So we are getting some warmer temperatures. I think Wednesday or Thursday night we're at 25 overnight in the south. So that's, that's quite a warm night when you're kind of then not um, going straight into 35 degrees the next day. So, it's, it's, so because it's not, it's not extreme, it's not super severe, they call it a low-intensity heat wave, uh, only when it's severe do you get a warning. But it's still something of note for people that may suffer from any conditions um, to note that. Um, and then Wednesday... Uh, our next front is approaching the state, um, and it's a cold front, uh, and it's a reasonable cold front. Um, winds are going to turn northerly. Temperatures are going to become warm to hot across the state, um, and there's also an um, upper trough that's sweeping the state, causing another risk of afternoon storms and isolated showers across central parts. Um, expected totals between 1 to 10 millimetres again across parts of the northern country and northeast, plus the ranges. Uh, one to five millimetres in the southeast. Still isolated falls and could be dry in many spots, but it's still um, worth noting. And then Thursday is the day. If no one's heard anything I've said right now, this is what to focus on. <laughs> Get the paper and pen ready now, Thursday. This yeah, is what exactly. we're going to talk about. Um, so Thursday is the day to watch. We've got northerly winds becoming strong and gusty in the west from early morning, pushing up fire dangers to near extreme across the Mallee, Wimmera, and northern country. It's going to be high elsewhere except for East Gippsland and the northeast. It's going to be very hot in the northwest. We're going to be above 40 um, and hot across the north and the south. So it's hot across the whole state and very hot in the northwest. We could see dry lightning in the west, um, which could um, ignite fires. So it's a really, given what happened last week, really got to focus on that. And there's going to be some showers and storms increasing in the afternoon. Uh, more in central and eastern parts as the front passes through those parts later in the day. Um, It moves into the eastern half of the state more in the evening and overnight, Thursday into Friday. And then there's another upper feature which is going to combine with the southerly and that's going to bring some rainfall over the eastern half of the state Friday. But the main point is Thursday um, we've got elevated fire dangers. It's going to be a really hot day across the state. 
um, and I know the SES are already on alert and, and preparing for that day. So, yeah, so some, some fire and, and storm weather again expected sort of Thursday. Does it, is it more Thursday evening or is it Thursday? I would say um, we could see Thursday. So from late morning, um, it's more probably early afternoon, uh, particularly in the west where you could get a bit of dry lightning. We're not going to see much rainfall in the west. It's going to be, as I said, you know, close to 40 degrees and really hot and gusty northerlies. Uh, that's which isn't a great combination um, for fire, and that's going to push up the those fire dangers to extreme, and so that's you know a big risk in those areas with a potential spark, uh, and then eventually that front will move on uh, into central parts in the late afternoon, but definitely early afternoon from then into evening is the time to watch out. Well, it's not nice to be hearing this especially after the events of last week Lincoln but it's important to be warned and I'm really glad that you told us about it so if if nothing else from this weather report focus on Thursday and be prepared for what could be some extreme fire weather and and some storms as well that'd be great Warwick thank you and uh, and rainfall was just got a couple of questions on the text around that line um, asking the Western Riverina so southern New South Wales saying uh, can you tell us if there's much in any rain coming for that part it's getting a bit dusty spraying says Gav at Kylite um, there's uh, other questions about uh, are we going to get more than one or two mils this week that looks to be central Victoria I think from memory uh, rainfall wise across the week what are we expecting. Well, it's, it's not a great rainfall week if people are looking for rainfall. Um, it's pretty dry, as I said. Um, really, it's the odd storm and shower in the afternoon with the heating that's going to bring these isolated falls. So, yeah, not going to see more than 1 to 10 millimetres across central parts and uh, the north-northeast. Uh, Wednesday is a bit of a day maybe for the north where if they're looking for that near the border... Uh, but definitely Friday, if uh, people are looking for a drop, uh, East Gippsland, even West Gippsland, the ranges, it's potentially going to be quite a bit of shower activity Friday morning. We could see, at the moment, it's got the model is saying totals of 20 mil or more. So that's definitely something to watch Friday morning, but it's pretty dry until then. Lincoln, really appreciate the update. Thanks very much for that. No problems, all right. Take care. Lincoln Trainer there, senior forecaster at the Weather Bureau, giving you your early warning, really, for Thursday too. So keep an eye out for that, and we'll continue to ask those questions on your behalf. So if you have one, you can send it through, 0467 842 722. This text that's come in said, here we go again, Was I know. But it's important to know, isn't it? So thank you very much for the Bureau for having a chat to that. And on the power conversation, this is another text here saying, interesting conversation on electricity was, I'm a small dairy farmer in northern Victoria, quite often have to milk with a generator as we can't get enough power to run the dairy and the vat. Unfortunately, we're on the same power supply of a local factory and it draws power. For us now, it's commonplace. That's interesting. I'd actually love to know more details on that. Thank you very much for sending that through. As well, uh, Thursday sounds like lovely weather. Why doesn't the Bureau call a total fire ban now? The wisdom of hindsight is 100% accurate. I think it's their info uh, that creates fire weather warnings and it's the uh, fire authorities that name fire bans. That's my understanding of how it's working and I'm sure we'll hear a lot about that in the run-up. The thing is you're being warned, warned now, right? So that's what we're... Uh, 
we're working towards at the moment. We'll continue to do that. This is The Country Air. It's a quarter to one. We better keep talking about uh, important issues of agriculture for you, including an amazing rust fungus from the other side of the world that could help control an important weed. Well, a difficult weed, really. Uh, CSI researchers are looking at a fungus found, rust fungus found in Colombia that could help farmers here control the big problem weed that is flax leaf fleabane. And they're pushing ahead with trials to demonstrate its efficacy. Dr. Ben Gooden is a senior research scientist at the CSIRO. He says biological controls for fleabane are being investigated because herbicide alone isn't getting the job done. So fleabane was identified through our collaboration with GRDC and by other researchers as one of the most significant weeds of the grain sector amongst many others, but particularly difficult to control because it has rapidly developed herbicide resistance and that resistance is spreading. I'd need to develop some complementary tools and biological control for fleabane was investigated for that purpose. So what we're essentially doing for the fleabane project is to identify in its native range where the weed evolved in South America, biological control agents which, um, if safe, could be imported to Australia and released to help control that plant. And where we are at with that research is the federal government approved um, a couple of years ago the release of a safe biological control agent for flax leaf fleabane, which is a rust fungus. And we have completed recently some trials in the field to optimise how we release that fungus and how best we can use it to control that plant. Okay, so that rust fungus has been sourced from from Colombia? From Colombia, that's right. And so that part of the process, it's a, it's a really long lead time, um, partly because when we go to South America, which we did, and we worked with collaborators over there, to um, explore what we term exploratory surveys. And we have a look for all the different types of natural enemies which are naturally over there keeping fleabane populations in check. Then we bring that to Australia under quarantine conditions, high security quarantine conditions, where we test the safety of that, in this case the fungus, um, on native and other important plant species in Australia to ensure that it doesn't infect and reproduce on them. And only if we can demonstrate its safety, the federal government regulators recommend for it to be released. And that's the point that we're at now. Okay, so uh, what results have you turned up from this fungus and and what hope does it hold in in controlling fleabane? Great, yeah. So we're at the point where we're um, piloting the releases to optimise how best to get it from a lab into the Australian environment. So what we found so far, because of these trials, it isn't a full rollout yet, um, but with the pilots we've shown that if fleabane is infected with the fungus, it significantly reduces how much seed is produced by fleabane. It doesn't kill the plant altogether. That's an important point to note. But the main problem that we're identifying with farmers and growers is they're quite good at killing fleabane. The problem is the populations keep coming back because copious seeds are produced and those seeds can spread by wind. And they're often blowing back into a field from nearby roadsides or irrigation lines or field margins where farmers and growers are often not able to control the population. So what we're finding is if the fungus can establish in those marginal areas, significantly reduce seed set, then there's less seed 
blowing back into the crop to replenish those seed banks. So we're finding that, which is really positive. We're very excited about that. Um, and we're also finding that the fungus, it's slow going, but we can get it to establish in Australia. Okay, so because it, it doesn't kill the plant but reduces seed set, it, it won't be mm. a silver bullet, but it could be a long-term way of reducing fleabane populations? Yes, not a silver bullet. It will not replace the need for farmers to control the weed themselves in their own field. But over many, many years, as the benefits of the fungus accumulate, we predict that the pressure on growers will be less because the populations will be lower, less chemicals will need to be used, um, and, and therefore much more sustainable practice on farm. And it's not just this fungus that you're working on for in terms of fleabane. You're also looking at potential uh, insects' biological control? Yeah, excellent question. That's right. Um, so we're working on multiple insects, but the one of most interest to us, our priority for research at the moment, is a stem-boring weevil, which burrows through the stem of, of our fleabane and it eats it from the inside out, essentially. And the reason that we're focusing on it is essentially to complement and add value to what the fungus is doing. So the fungus focuses on the, the leaves and how the plant can photosynthesize and develop fruit. And then in the meantime, the weevil will be burrowing through the stem and disrupting the ability for fleabane to grow. And what's the timeline going to be on, on, on both of those options? The first one is easy to answer because we already have the fungus in our hands and we're already working with growers to optimise how to use that in the field. So that one is ongoing uh, and that is a live project at the moment. The insect has a longer lead time because we're only at the stage of assessing its safety. That's Dr. Ben Gooden, a senior research scientist at CSIRO, speaking with Angus Verley. Not every day you hear someone speaking so positively about importing goods from Colombia, and it sounds really interesting, that rust fungus and what it could do for fleabane control here. You're listening to The Country Hour. Let's talk about exporting some of our produce now. And this has been a hot topic over the last few weeks with exports of table grapes to Indonesia restarting after a week's long delay. Indonesia failed to issue import permits for the commodity at the start of this year as its government prepared for a national election on February 14. And it affected a lot of commodities like cattle from the top end, uh, horticulture here, and a bunch of other things as well. You've heard the cattle guys in rural news earlier. They're excited and already sending cattle this weekend from Darwin. And uh, and now it's the time for table grape exporters as well. Uh, the country is the second largest buyer of Australian table grapes and a very important market. And Australian Table Grape Association CEO Jeff Scott says it's good to see progress, but the issue isn't completely resolved. Prior to the Indonesian election, the Minister of Trade opened up the import permits and quotas and some importers were able to get, not their full quota, but a number of import permits and quotas, which enable trade to commence, which was thankful for us because Indonesia is an extremely important market to us. It's our second biggest export market. It uh, takes up probably close to $100 million worth of product and it caused a lot of anxiety and angst amongst our growers because they needed to send fruit and they weren't able to do so until just recently. What, what's happening now? What's the response from, from growers and exporters? The good thing is that we're now exporting to Indonesia. And we've probably got maybe 200 containers on the water right now. 
yet to arrive in Indonesia, but at least the imports have started over there, which is a big plus. The election is now over, so hopefully the Indonesian government uh, gets back to their business of governing and they'll issue the RIPHS, which is the import licence, and the additional quotas that uh, need to be issued and things get back to normal. Well, it sounds like there's a bit of relief then in the amongst table grape growers if those permits have now been issued. Is that the feeling that you're hearing from people? No, there's still a few concerns because the full amount of the quotas have not been issued yet and perhaps not all importers have received the import permits or quotas, only some have. So, as, as mentioned, we're hoping that the... Um, the Indonesian governments get back to the business of, of issuing these annual licences uh, very quickly and we can uh, go back to our normal trade with Indonesia and future years as well. Are there any lessons that we can learn from this experience for, for the future? Look, there's no lessons to be learned. It's just the process that the Indonesian government goes through on an annual basis, as mentioned. Um, we just have to hope that um, there's no hiccups in future years where the importers apply for their import licence and quotas in November, December, so they're ready to start importing on the 1st of uh, January. Uh, there's, there's only been one hiccup in the past where that causes some problems, but the last two or three years has been very good. That's Table Grape Association CEO Jeff Scott speaking there to Elsie Kennedy about some of the difficulties with exporting produce uh, with Indonesia, in this case with import permits, uh, leading to some delays and still needing some fixing. If you want to look at the uh, local markets for produce in Australia in more detail tonight on Four Corners, you can watch a uh, story on how the two big supermarkets uh, make their profits and some of their techniques and tactics as well. That's on ABC TV later tonight. Let's get to livestock markets now. All right, let's see how markets are performing. We'll start today with the sheep and lamb markets, and that means on a Monday we're heading to Bendigo and Jenny Kelly. Numbers were pulled back in a strong reaction from farmers to the cheaper prices which have crept back into the market, with just 9,740 lambs and 1,850 sheep at Bendigo today. Four buy-in orders were absent, including the supermarkets, and most processors were just poking along again. Lamb quality dropped off in a big way, with a lot of smaller pen lots and half-finished lambs about. Prices were similar to last week on the better-finished lambs to $5 off on the general run. Export lambs over 30 kilos carcass weight, 195 to top of $232. The heavy 26 to 30 kilo crossbreds 165 to 196. These categories are averaging around 640 to 650 cents a kilo. Once on to the general trades, the rate was more like 620 to 630 cents a kilo or 139 to 158 for the 22 to 24 kilo trade lambs. In the sheep, heavy mutton was cheaper with big crossbred ewes at 60 to 90 dollars to be well under two bucks a kilo. Trade and light sheep sold okay in comparison at 30 to $51. Jenny Kelly for MLA. Thanks, Jenny. Let's move on to the cattle run now, and we'll start today in Pakenham. Brendan Fletcher can get his report through now. G'day, Brendan. G'day, Warwick. Numbers decreased to 1,080. That's 440 fewer, with the usual buyers operating in a cheaper market in places. Quality decline with fewer prime lots and secondary cattle throughout. Most young cattle eased 10 to 15 cents. Ground steers and bullocks lost 8 on most sales. Manufacturing steers eased 2 to 7 cents. Cows gave back 10 to 20, with processors loading cows for an estimated 3.39 to 4.64 cents a kilogram. Carcass weight. Heavy bulls sold firm. 
Veal has sold from 246 to 350. Yearling trade steers 300 to 352. The heifer portion 248 to 320. Ground steers and bullocks 258 to 320. Heavy Frisian manufacturing steers 230 to 255. Crossbreds 230 to 298. Most light and medium weight cows 104 to 218. Heavyweights 185 to 254. Heavy bulls 196 to 256. This is Brendan Fletcher reporting for MLA. Thanks very much for that, Brendan. Let's go to Wagga Wagga in the cattle market there. Here's Leanne Dax. Good afternoon. In a reduced yarding of 5,700, the market stalled as buyers aimed for significantly lower price levels compared to the previous sale. Peter Steers experienced a decrease of 10 to 20 cents, ranging from 285 to 350. Feeder heifers faced challenges in attracting feedlot buyers, slipping 20 to 30 cents and selling between 230 and 297 cents. Trade cattle remained scarce and were priced between 255 and 340. Restockers did show interest across lightweight categories but at rates lower by 30 cents with better bred steers fetching between $3 and sorry 300 cents and 400 cents. In the export market competition was inconsistent resulting in a decline in prices of 10 to 15 cents with heavy steers selling at 240 to 289 and bullocks at 246 to 290 cents a kilogram. Heavy cows dropped 10 cents, selling between 230 and 249 cents. This has been Leanne Ducks for MLA. Thanks very much for that, Leanne. Lucky last in the market run today is Mortlake Cattle. Take it away, Chris Agnew. Thanks, Warwick. Numbers came back to 1,290 head at Mortlake this week, a decrease of 1,537. It was a good offering overall categories for the top end. However, it did fall away very quickly with a larger tail of crossbred cattle on offer. The grown cattle and bullocks displayed good weight for the lead and the cow offering was a very good mixture of good beef-bred cows and dairy-bred cows. Not all the regular processes were present and or active in a market that was fully firm over most categories. However, the cows did regain 10 cents a kilo and the grown bulls also gained 20 cents. This week's offering of vealers made between 275 and 330. Trade steers and heifers making between 265 and 316 with the grown cattle topping out at 304 cents. Manufacturing steers sold up to a top of 272. With the heavy beef cows from 220 to 257 this week and the medium weights 180 to 220. At Mortlake, this is Chris Agnew reporting for MLA. Thanks very much for that, Chris. Just before we go on the country out today, I think Simon can have the last word on our text line. Uh, talking about the uh, rust being imported from Colombia to fight fleabane, says re-biological measures to combat a weed. Of course they are experts and are being careful, but someone has to say it. What could possibly go wrong, says Simon. Yes, Simon, you were saying what many of us think, I think, when we think about importing things to fight other other problems, but it, we've got a long history of it in Australia, and, of course, we only remember the bad ones, don't we? It's 1 o'clock. Back with you tomorrow.